0: It's time for our, uh, our live to air a very special conversation about the world premiere of No Friend But The Mountains, a symphonic song, Cycle, which is going to be performed at the Sydney Meyer Music Bowl on Sunday the 21st of March. And you can find out more info at zelmansymphony.org.au. It's uh, an adaptation of the book No Friend But The Mountains, written in fragments, methodically tapped out on a mobile phone that had to be carefully hidden from prison authorities. It's written by Barouz Bashani, subtitled Writing From Manus Prison, published in 2019. uh, The book went on to win the Victorian Premier's Prize for Literature in February 2019 and at the same award ceremony, the uh, Prize for Non-Fiction as well. Accepting his award via a mobile telephone held up to the microphone by his friend, the book's translator, Omid uh, Tafikian, Uh, Barouz described his win as a victory against the system that reduces us to numbers. His speech moved many in the crowd to tears, myself included, as he went on, I really appreciate you for accepting me and acknowledging my work. It shows the truth that I am accepted by the community in Australia, a big part of Australia already. It is not important that the government will not allow me to join you, no matter where I end up. My affinity, my heart is with you, and I will be a part of Australia. Today, the Kurdish-Iranian journalist, human rights defender, poet, film producer and writer lives in New Zealand, whose compassionate government granted him asylum, when ours would not. Uh, Behrouz Bishani and many like him were detained as part of the so-called Pacific Solution, jointly supported by both sides of Parliament under dehumanising conditions on Manus Island, uh, conditions which Behrouz writes about at length, in No Friend But The Mountains. It is my great pleasure today to be joined by Baruz Bishani, his translator and friend Omid Tufigian, and composer Luke Stiles to discuss No Friend But The Mountains, its new incarnation, a song cycle, presented by the Zelman Symphony Orchestra, Art Centre Melbourne and the Wheeler Centre. Gentlemen, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Beruz, when you were writing No Friend But The Mountains on Manus, uh, which was done including through conversations through Facebook and WhatsApp, what were your original hopes for the manuscript? I'm guessing at the time you did not expect that it would be turned into a symphonic song cycle.
1: Thank you for having me. I think uh, uh, I should talk about the time that I was uh, working as a journalist in, in uh, Manus Island, and uh, so, as you probably know, I was working as a journalist for uh, many years, and I was publishing journalism works, but uh, I thought that uh, actually journalism language is not capable that we expose the system, so that's why I shifted my work to uh, literature and art, although... When I ended up in Manus Island, I was thinking about this to write a book, but I didn't know that which language should I use. So after a while, I started to write, and I think on that time, I knew Omid very well through the journalism works, because we were working together for such a long time, and Then I started to write the book. And uh, I remember I expected that we uh, get uh, large uh, readers, but uh, and also I knew and I imagined that this book is going to actually shake the whole system. But I thought that it will take time. It will take at least 10 years that really this book find its way. Um, it, actually, I was shocked when we got a huge uh, reaction from people in Australia and then later uh, all around the world. And, uh, but we expected that we get some uh, good attention, but not like this. Um, and also we expected that in the future, uh, more artists and uh, academics engage with the materials that we create. And also, I was thinking about the music, actually. I expected that, but not in a short time, in two, three years. That, And when Luke uh, approached me, uh, we had a long uh, conversation and uh, we discussed this. So in some ways, I expected and in some ways, not really.
0: Luke, how did you discover the book and why did you decide it was the right piece of work to adapt into a a, a symphonic song cycle?
2: Well, I was working in Perth at the time and I was working on my opera Ned Kelly and the singer Adrian Tamburini, who's singing in the premiere of the song cycle, was reading Berries' book. And he suggested that I have a read of it and get a copy myself because there was this brilliant flow between poetry and prose in the, in the book. And he thought there was a musicality there. So I bought the book, I read it, absolutely agreed. The music kind of leaped out from the page. And importantly for me, what I saw in, in the book was a unique, well, an, an Australian story a recurring Australian story in our history, which is one of migration and incarceration, um, of which I was seeing Beruz's portrayal of these themes as the latest iteration of a recurring Australian story, um, certainly since, you know, uh, penal colonies and, and convict times, but, you know, throughout our history. And there were those themes. There were also themes of of nature, which, for me are really tied to a sense of Australian identity, a relationship with waves and the ocean, a particular look at the sky, unique flora and fauna. And so an image of a beautiful cage, if you like, a kind of gilded prison emerged from the book, which for me chimed, as I say, with a sense of Australian identity and this contrast with kind of a, a literal prison alongside the idea of an island continent as a prison in itself. Um, And working on Ned Kelly, I was engaging in kind of explicit Australian identity themes through that work. And what I wanted to do was was go deeper and find another kind of angle to do this. And that's what I saw in Beruze's book, an important Australian story to tell there.
0: Omid, in the introduction to No Friends But the Mountains, you write about the challenges of translating the, quote, poetic resonances of the original Farsi phrases into English and also about the decision to keep those passages of poetry that punctuate the prose so strikingly and so beautifully. Talk to us about your role in this latest phase of the process of, uh, of this musical adaptation and, and about the importance of maintaining the the book's poetic integrity in the songs.
3: Well, thank you for that really important question and very complex question. I'll try my best to summarize. Um, basically, uh, Behrouz was writing text messages from very early on um, into his incarceration, and he was sending those text messages to his first translator, Munis Mansoubi, whose translations actually led me to to, um, working with Behrouz. So Munis would collect these text messages that would range between one paragraph and maybe two or three pages, and um, basically she would combine them into um, chapters based on Behrouz's instructions. Then she would make them into PDFs, and then she would send me the PDFs. And while I was translating, Behus would be sending me more messages to insert. And so you can already imagine how complicated it is and and how difficult it is for me to explain. But when I was reading, uh, I knew it was a masterpiece. But at the same time, I was wondering, as someone who didn't have training in translation, Uh, I was wondering, how would I convert these really long sentences in Farsi into English? Because Farsi, um, uh, like a lot of Romance languages and also German, uh, has very long sentences with the subject at the beginning and the verb right at the end. And in between, you have all of these consecutive, complicated, varying clauses. So what I ended up doing was splitting up the long sentences into shorter sentences, which meant that I had to uh, repeat nouns, verbs, adjectives, adverbs, phrases. So after about the third edit after translating, because when I translated everything was still one paragraph, the whole book was essentially one paragraph or every chapter was one paragraph. So when I was splitting them all up and making it into some kind of um, uh, literary piece uh, I noticed that uh, some of those sections that I where I split up the sentences uh, looked more like poetry, and that's because the original sentence was melodic, it was rhythmic, it was poetic. so what we ended up deciding on doing was for certain sections to transform the Engl- the Farsi prose into English verse and I think it worked really well
0: I agree absolutely. I guess the uh, the thing that immediately leaps from that well, there's a couple of things I wanted to pick up on, but Baru's before we talk more about uh, the song cycle itself, to the idea of writing a book piecemeal, part by part, in paragraphs, many writers would be able to uh, sit back and reread earlier parts of a manuscript, uh, edit as they go. Kind of, it must have been an enormous creative challenge for you, particularly under the circumstances you were contained in. Uh, To think about this as this body of work as a whole thing, how did you approach the writing of it? Were you focused on it as a body of work or were you focused on just making the individual parts as strong as they could be and hoping that the connections would later flow between them?
1: Uh, Actually, I think it is a good question because uh, just people think about this, that writing a book, a whole book on WhatsApp is difficult, but really people cannot imagine that what is the difficulties. you know, just they look at the whole picture that someone write a book on WhatsApp. But it's really difficult because I didn't have uh, this opportunity to really re-edit and uh, rewrite some uh, paragraphs of the book because uh, just I had to write it once. And uh, so it was really difficult when you have a long uh, message in front of you on WhatsApp, on the phone, and you really work on it again. And so that was really difficult. And I'm sure if I had the computer, I could do better, you know. And sometimes uh, I had this uh, conversation with Omid, for example, when I finished a chapter and I said, Omid, oh, here is chapter five, for example. Uh, I We had a long conversation and I said, oh, Omid, so I think so that paragraph, you should take it off or this sentence or this word. I mean, it was like uh, talking, you know, sometimes it was like that. And sometimes I had to uh, send the uh, email. So it was messy actually, because it was difficult to manage all of these. And another thing is that, you know, in a normal situation, the writers write a book finish it, then get back to it and uh, edit it or work on it again, or even some writers add a chapter or take off a chapter, take off a paragraph. But uh, in that circumstances, we believe that we should publish this book as soon as possible because we wanted to uh, create change. The aim was not to create a literature uh, text. The aim was actually a political aim, to challenge the system. So that's why uh, when I finished the chapter, Omid was translating in the same time, and I was working on uh, another chapter. So, I mean, that was really difficult. But of course, uh, in, in the end, Omid did a great job because he worked with the editor of the publisher, I think it took like six months, yeah. Mm-hmm. And another problem that I had, I had to write in a way to protect uh, the people' privacy so I was not uh, free actually to write about everything and that's why the characters actually, I are not real characters so I had to mix some characters and create a new character. That even when the refugees read it, they really don't recognize which person am I talking about. So that was really difficult. And also, I had to write it in a way that, uh, because, you know, when you come, like 600 uh, boats came to Australia in uh, four or five years. And uh, each boat has a different story, you know. And I hear many stories from other people and I had to write it in a way that represent uh, all of these journeys, you know? So it was uh, not only my personal story and the particular book, that
0: I came with I mean, given the uh, the collaborative nature of the writing process uh, that we've just heard about uh, it seems then almost a logical extension of that process to involve a composer in the next iteration of this story and storytelling uh, can you talk to us a little bit about the uh, the the development of this now into uh, the the song cycle. Uh, And Luke, I'll get you to to chime in as well, Uh, just to to talk about extending that collaboration that has already been built to now bring in music and uh, a musical voice to further enrich the piece.
3: Yeah, I'm really glad that you raised this because for me one of the most important, one of the most special things about the book is what i call in my translator's note a shared philosophical activity so Behruz already talked about the conversations that took place while we were working on the w- book during the translation process and these conversations not just with behrus but uh with munis who was my um uh, she was my translation consultant and also sajad Kapgani, who's a uh, but he's in Iran now, but he was a PhD student in uh, Sydney at the time. I worked with both of them. We had long conversations, sometimes hour-long conversations about one word or one sentence. Um, And then there were other people who were interacting with, getting feedback from. Behrouz had his own confidence. So basically this was... Some of us didn't know each other and, you know, we were all working towards the same goal. It was almost like we were one mind, many bodies, um, which is an interesting philosophical um, possibility (laughs) at the same time. Um, um, but uh, this shared philosophical activity, I think, is important because it talks about the way that there is a larger story to the book. It, it speaks to this uh, phenomenon of um of a frame narrative so there's the the book can be interpreted as a kind of um smaller story with a much wider story um, and that wider story is this beautiful relationship that a group of friends and a, a group of activists, a group of creatives had together and I think um, Luke is definitely part of that shared philosophical activity now, um, and uh, Richard, you're part of it as well. I mean, everyone who comes in and supports us, everyone who gives us feedback, everyone who promotes the work and, 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 and uh, engages in this plight, in this um, uh, campaign, is part of this shared philosophical activity. And when Luke got in touch with me, I think about two years ago now, he, um, you know, we were talking about support letters and how to um, uh, attract other people into to invest in this in some way to to, to expand our uh, our network. Um, I, of course, you know, I, was, I looked up Luke and uh, wanted to see what kind of work he'd done in the past. And I think the first thing that came up on Google for me was uh, Luke's work, uh, Unborn in America. And uh, I automatically saw that uh, Jello Biafra wrote a really great review about uh, that work. And Jello Biafra is or was the lead singer of uh, Dead Kennedys, uh, an amazing punk group, uh, and uh, uh, I was automatically sold. So, um, you know, I think these radical connections are also really interesting, how they come together and how they they feed each other and uh, and how they attract different sensitivities. Luke, do you want to pick up that conversation?
2: Yeah, no, I love that. Um, unborn is certainly a political work. At the, the centre of it is an unborn fetus who gets elected president and ends up aborting the human race um so it's a satirical cabaret opera but with deeply serious um issues around um abortion at its center um not just that but lots of other things and it's you know it's funny and it's kind of anarchic and yeah political as satire is so i'm glad that was the piece that that you listened to it's also a very lyrical work and it's for the voice and you know, that's a direct translation into this new song cycle, because having a voice at the center of this this new piece and that most human of musical sounds, the human voice, um, is really key, I think, to translating a lot of these ideas into music.
0: And talk to us just briefly, uh, perhaps, about the music itself to capture the emotional intensity of the book, the truth of the book, and the the fact that it is beautifully written about terrible circumstances. How do you do justice to that?
2: Sure well I mean if I was to translate the book into music it would be a kind of week or a two week long event so certainly the text that I chose is a tiny fraction of of the book's complete text and therefore it needed to tell its own story that was as compact as the amount of text that that I chose so what's there is really this sense of a journey and it's the journey that Beruze goes on but it could be the journey of, of an Irish convict coming to Australia, or someone coming from Vietnam after the Vietnam War, or an Italian or Greek refugee fleeing the Second World War. It has that kind of shared Australian experience to it. Um, it describes you know this journey in terms of the dimensions of the boat, the unfamiliar waves, waves of a foreign ocean, and you know I feel that when I'm In Europe, the water is different to when I'm in Australia. The light is different. So the first half of the work is really about this journey. And then we get to the prison. And again, Beruz is describing his present prison experience, but it chimed with descriptions of the kind of water prisons on Norfolk Island where people were chained kind of into the water and as the tide rose, they would, you know, more and more submerged so it's this kind of this exploration of the idea of a cage um, a prison um, that then turns very philosophical beruz talks about you know the absurdity of life and it the end of the work moves into this contemplation of of human nature more and more so that's, yeah, the rough trajectory of the work through the
0: music. Triple R is the station you're tuned to, 102.7 on your FM dial, and streaming around the world at rrr.org.au. And if you're just joining us, uh, we are discussing the world premiere of No Friend But the Mountains, a symphonic song cycle, uh, a collaborative piece uh, inspired by uh, Baruz Bashani's award winning book, No Friends But the Mountains, Writing from Manus Prison. Baruz, the uh, decision to subtitle the book Writing from Manus Prison rather than Writing from Manus Island. Talk to us a little bit about that decision uh, and the, uh, the way you've chosen to explore in the book uh, the uh, the idea of the, uh, I, the, I believe the phrase is, uh, is hierarchy, the um, social systems of domination and oppression, which Manus really seemed to be set up to do. It wasn't just a place to hold people, the way you write about it. It was a place to break people down.
1: Yeah, exactly. I think uh, that is a very good point, important point that you mentioned, that the, that prison system was not designed to just hold people. It was designed to really take people identity and dehumanize them and actually humiliate them and reduce them to a number. And in the end, through this uh, systematic torture, they forced them to go back to their countries, forced them to accept that send us back to our own countries and to the place that the refugees really uh, fled and i think that is very important so the main uh, uh, one of the key concepts in this book is uh, the concept of a critical system which uh, actually this uh, is really is about the system of control that whole The system was designed to control people and also to divide our own small community, create hate between uh, our small community and create competition between the the detainees. And uh, uh, that is the whole, that you really, it is a system of control that they aim in the end, the aim is that the detainees really don't feel life, don't feel freedom, even for a second. So that is the whole system. Um, so later, I and Omid we developed uh, another concept, Manus prison theory, which uh, we say that how there are many similarities between Manus prison system and. Uh, in a free society like the the other structures like airport education system I don't know universities everywhere we have a kind of Manus prison system but we say that the original system exists in uh, Manus prison system and in Manus island and we should really study that we should try to understand it and the aim of the book actually was that to expose this system so that's why sometimes i say that this book is a uh, like a kind of psychological and sociological text you know and a political text just to expose the soul of that system so that is what of course i use the quite special term for the title No front but the mountain, which is uh, related to a Kurdish term that uh, Kurds don't have a friend but the mountain. So that is related to the history of resistance in Kurdistan against uh, in front of colonialism. And also the PRISM, the word that I used for that actually was uh, to challenge the language of uh, propaganda, the language of the media and the language of the politicians, that they say this place is an offshore processing centre. No, it's not offshore processing centre. It is a prison. It is a place worse than a prison. So that is the whole story.
0: Omid, how quickly did you... Become aware when you were editing the book that you were indeed editing uh, a, something which is, as uh, Barouz has just told us, that is a it's a philosophical textbook, uh, a political textbook as much as a memoir or a story.
3: Oh. Um- I'm certain, uh, I was certain that this book was um, multidimensional. Um, it was uh, a, a huge contribution to history and literature. I was certain of that even before I started reading it. It was when I um, came across Behrouz's journalism. When I read his journalism, um, uh, first of all, the article that Muniz translated and I uh, found out about Behrouz, and then when I started translating Behrouz's journalism, I realised that there were different layers of meaning um, that were... Um, Um, being represented, Uh, and uh, these included uh, philosophy, politics, um, testimony, but also um, poetry, uh, culture... Um, there was a, a sensitivity to different forms of oppression um, throughout history, um, different people's plights, and the more Behruz became familiar with Australia's history, we uh, he started to um, make reference to, and some, sometimes explicitly, uh, sometimes implicitly, to um, the dispossession, displacement and ongoing suppression of um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples in Australia. So this was something that I became familiar with before I started on the book, um, but when I I got the first chapter um, and I started reading. I think I was two or three pages into it, and I said to myself, This is going to be a masterpiece. I'm so glad I didn't um, uh, turn down the opportunity to translate this because uh, I knew from the beginning that um, it was going to be something special. It was going to be a a part of Australian history. It was going to be a part of the history of of displacement in the modern world, uh, displacement and exile in the modern world. It was also an important abolitionist text, I think. This book says a lot about um, abolitionist uh, perspectives and philosophies and actions, and uh, and I just felt uh, really honoured to be part of it. I thought to myself that if I don't do anything else for the rest of my life, uh, I'm fine. I'm good. This is this is what I want to be remembered for for translating this.
0: Luke as. Uh a composer i want to ask about the challenge of reflecting a uh, and i guess adapting a book which as we've just heard is about so many things including australian history which you've previously previously expressed kind of interest in uh, but how do you create the musical idea of a system of control of a, a beautiful prison to echo some phrases that we've heard used in this conversation having spoken to you in the past about uh, the ned kelly opera for example i know that you in, incorporate of the existing folk songs into that work, for example. You deliberately wove in uh, kind of percussive music to represent the the forging of the armour uh, and so forth. So what's been your approach in the, the musical adaptation and creation of No Friend But The Mountains, a symphonic song cycle?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I think to start with, you know, you need to see them as two separate works, that the book is its own work and this piece of music is its own work and there's an obvious link which is the use of the text but there's things that are much better expressed in words and in the book than would be expressed in music and you know the complexity of some of these political ideas and philosophical ideas and systems um, you could translate them into music, but they're not the things that that I've translated or you know, attempt to to kind of find a, a connection with my voice because you know I can't tell Beruze's story. I can't, I don't have a lived refugee or asylum seeker experience. And I wouldn't kind of try and create a work that attempted to, you know, express that experience because it's not my story. What did chime with me and what I have tried to turn into music is where Beru's story feels part of a continuum, part of a recurring Australian identity trait of imprisonment, of migration, and that sense of isolation, be it forced isolation in a prison, or whether it's the beautiful isolation of living on an island continent that allows for the, the really extraordinary kind of flora and fauna and geography that is embedded in our sense of Australian identity, as most of us are coast dwellers. Um, or we have an imagined kind of perception of the outback, which also forms our Australian identity. And picking up on the beauty of that, which is in Beruz's text as well. So those are where a lot of the musical image making comes from. There's there's very clear senses of, of the water, of kind of peaks and troughs, of highs and lows within the orchestra that are kind of word painting to a certain extent. Um, but then there's there's music that goes incredibly dark. As we look inside the prison, and there's there's rhythmic music that comes out of the repetition that's in those descriptions of the prison. Um, percussion certainly plays a large role in that. Um, we also have the choir. There's, I mean, the piece is massive. It's a huge symphony orchestra. I was originally told the choir would be about 180 people on stage. With COVID, we've got a few left, but it, less, sorry, but it's still a massive number of voices on there. And they actually sing, you know, fragments of the Australian anthem here and there. Well, they don't actually sing any words of it. They just hum some kind of styles, variation of the anthem. Um, So they're kind of a community voice in a way whereas adrian the bass baritone soloist at the center is if there's any narrative in what i've written he's the voice that embodies that um he's not you know he's by no means beruz's voice but he is the voice that's that's leading us musically through the piece from these moments of of beauty, when we hear about you know the waves, the trees, the sun, the a bird, into then the moments of real darkness.
0: If we're talking about voice, this then perhaps a, a question for both uh, baruz and also you, Omid, is uh, the the idea of adapting a voice to create. A different emotional response in a reader, whether that's the voice you use in journalism, the voice you use in poetry, the voice you use in adapting a work for a song cycle, for example. I'm imagining you have creative input into the, the lyrics of the piece, for example. How, do you, how conscious are you about kind of having to adapt the existing voice that is the book? Uh, for an entirely new framing, an entirely new emotional context?
1: I think uh, I should talk about this in uh, two uh, levels. The first one is that I think what is important in this project, in this work, is that I like the way, uh, I mean, the Luke's uh, perspective towards this uh, book. So he actually, he is not really just follow uh, the book. He is not just interpret or, I mean, shift the book and create uh, to a uh, music. Actually, he uh, contributes the Australian perspective uh, with the book. You know what I mean? I mean, it is like a contribution. So he's, uh, he is talking about the identity identity of Australia. And his perspective is a historical perspective too. And I feel that is my understanding. He has a kind of nostalgia, so he can talk about it later, uh, a nostalgia about the history of Australia and the way people have come to this country and the way people actually contribute, and what we are talking about, I and Omid actually, we say, I think that is very important. That uh, really people didn't talk about it yet. That Manus prison system, Nauru, all of these prison system are a part of Australia, are a part of Australian identity, and I say that it is the Manus Island is the uh, unconscious part of Australia, you know, and uh, that has an impact, a huge impact on political culture in Australia. And in other side, we contribute to the Australian society through this work and other works. And also the Australian people resist in front of the system, you know. I mean, this work actually is... Uh, representing the voice of Australian people who are really angry, who are really cannot and don't want to accept this. And they reject this uh, horrible policy towards the refugees, the way the system treats the refugees. And it is a, like a kind of resistance. And I think Luke the, is resisting in front of this system through this book. And that's why I like this book because it's not the voice of the book. Actually, the book creates a space for him to create this music, which has uh, its own particular identity, which is an Australian identity. It's not my voice or the refugee's voice, actually. I think that is very important. And of course, another thing that I want to mention is that you talk about uh, why it's important to uh, create music. I think it's very important. Why? Because we are talking, we are recording a part of Australia history, which uh, the system always denied. You know, if you look at the history of Australia, the system, the Australian mentality is like that. They just... Denied. They say, oh, we didn't do this, or even we did that, but it was not horrible like that, that you say. And uh, it's very easy that people forget about it because the whole story is about marginalized people. It's about the, I call it the unofficial part of Australia history. So it's very easy that people forget about it, you know. So what we are doing actually, and what Luke did, is that we create another work which uh, in a different language in musical language and that actually we record a part of australia history in a different language in a different platform and i think that, and we are continuing, we, we are working on this so our we are working on a play which is coming out a journal is coming out, a movie. So we are working on, but we won't stay here just on this book. So we are creating new opportunities. And I think that is very important. I, I, I like this book, this uh, work. I mean, the the idea of creating this work is important. And the way look uh, look at it, I really like that.
0: I mean, we're almost out of time. Do you want to pick li- quickly pick up on
3: any of those points? Yeah, just very quickly. I think Beruz explained it really well. But um, uh, on the issue of voice, what was important for me while I was translating was to uh, constantly be in consultation with Beruz, to collaborate with him, to to um, ask him for different leads and different um, symbols and, uh, and inspirations to help me with my translation. So this led me on a, a long journey, um, and uh, part of that journey was in analysing and and researching uh, Kurdish resistance and Kurdish history and Kurdish literature and storytelling traditions. And so um, this helped with the translation because I was able to bring those voices, you know, um, uh, I, I was able to bring in a lot of Indigenous Kurdish presence into the book. And, uh, and, of course, other uh, marginalized groups, which better is referred to as well. M- myself, I'm from a, a, a different marginalized group in Iran and, of course, in Australia. Um, uh, and, you know, with these, all, all, we, we leveraged all of these experiences and identities to make the book really strong, really powerful, and to speak to many people with multiple voices. So I think um, what uh, what Luke is doing is actually introducing more voices, uh, enhancing or amplifying the voices that are there, but introducing more voices so that more people can identify with the with the form of resistance that it represents. Just one last thing is uh, that I, I I really believe that uh, in a situation where that is it, that is based on that's controlled by suppression, domination and also subject subjugation. Uh, I, I think it's important that to uh, acknowledge that time is taken away from people. And the, one of the best Ways of reclaiming time is by introducing new rhythms, new patterns, uh, and I think music does that really well.
0: Speaking of time, we are going to have to wrap up the conversation. I am uh, very sorry, but I should just remind people that the world premiere of No Friend But the Mountains, a symphonic song cycle, presented uh, by Zelman Symphony Orchestra, Art Centre Melbourne, and the Wheeler Centre, is taking place on Sunday, the 21st of March, at the Sydney Meyer Music Bowl as part of Art Centre Melbourne's Live at the Bowl Summer Festival. For more information, Go to liveatthebowl.com.au or zelmansymphony.org.au, and you can book tickets through Ticketek 132849. You've been listening to Baruz bachani Luke Styles, and Omid uh, Tofigian in conversation live on Triple R. Thank you to everyone who's been listening or been watching via the Triple R website and YouTube page. If you missed the chat, you can listen back via radio on demand or watch it on Triple R's website and YouTube channels. Peruz, Luke and Omid, thank you so much for joining me on the program today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Right now... It's my very great pleasure to introduce my first guest for the morning, the Festival Director of the Melbourne International Comedy Festival, Susan Proven AO, who joins us to give us a bit of an overview of this year's festival, which, Susan, at this time last year, I think we were both wondering whether anything would happen in 2021.
4: It's very weird, isn't it, Richard, and nice to speak to you. It's... um. Well, I think for a while there last year we all thought that this year would be back to normal and it's taken us a year to kind of think, well, no, it's not back to normal. And it, and we were at the um, we were at the Palais Theatre yesterday, where bumping has started for the gala. But it's all the same set pieces, or mainly the same set pieces, that were bumped in last year and then bumped out before an audience even got to see them. And just walking in there yesterday, and there was all those same set pieces back on the stage. And I just had this, you know, in the road cases, I just had this incredible sense of. I don't know I felt like God, was it wasn't it only five minutes that I walked out of this theater in deep sadness that we were having to pack everything up, and here we are again yeah
0: you know, it's weird it is weird, <laughs> and that I think that for me that's one of the reasons that last year felt so strange. It simultaneously dragged by it felt like the slowest year ever, an eternal march, but simultaneously mm. it flew by because we had nothing none of the usual mm. milestones and road marks that we would normally look back and go. Oh, oh, that's right, in March I did this, in June I did that, in July, etc. And it was literally almost a year ago to the day, it was the 13th of March last year that the comedy festival announced that it had to cancel cancel because the the Mm. Prime Minister had said gatherings over 500 people are banned. A couple of days later, it was gatherings over 100 and we all know what happened next. But Mm. the sheer Mm. fact that the festival is back this year, it is admittedly in... A modified form without a lot of the international yes. guests, but the fact that it's back, I think, is a triumph. So, congratulations to you and your team.
4: Yeah, it's um, it is. It's exciting and terrifying, but terrifying in equal measure. But yes, it's all. I think we're all feeling tremendously optimistic, and everybody. There's a real sense that certainly all the comedians and people who've been without work or with only very little work for the last year, uh, obviously. Really desperate to get back and do stuff, and it's been great that you know the Adelaide fringe has kicked off and the perth fringe um who had to cancel a week, but you know mainly they got through unscathed, so we're all feeling yeah we're feeling optimistic and and excited because this is where people begin it's the beginning of their next year of work i suppose and and onwards into the into the future, and just that you know, now people are get starting to get vaccinated and It feels more solid. It's going to be slow, but um, we feel like there's a path.
0: (laughs) Now, one of the reasons I used the word triumph to talk about the fact that the festival is back this year, when we spoke last on the uh, Thursday the 2nd of April, you talked about the the massive deficit, to use your own words, that Mm. the festival had incurred by having to cancel at the last minute. You'd printed all the the brochures, the flyers, the, uh, the banners were hung... All the venues Mm -hmm. were hired, all the collateral had been produced and a lot of money had been spent. So just very quickly before we dive into some of the highlights of this year's festival, how hard has it been to recover from that deficit for the Melbourne International Comedy Festival? And Because you mentioned it would take a couple of years to recoup the losses concerned.
4: Yeah, well, we wiped out a large chunk of our reserves, you know, the, the money that you build up over years and years and years that is essentially your risk capital against the rainy day. So we did, we had that very, very big rainy day. Um, but we, we've we had tremendous support from the state government um, who have been very committed to making sure that... Um, Melbourne's major e- events, and you know a lot of other things besides get get back on track. so in terms of just being able to get this festival off the ground, we've been able to do that with the assistance of government support um and from a number of philanthropic um, organisations and yeah so and and we've got a much it, it is smaller we've we've had to be very very careful about our exposure so we're building a lot less venues you know we've printed a smaller program you know there are economies all over the place um, but we've, you know, we've found a way to be able to do it. So it'll be a, a gradual build back to
0: business as usual next year. And this year, we're looking at over 250 shows with a focus on Australian artists. Comedians have clearly suffered as a result of not being able to perform to live audiences. How important is the return of Melbourne International Comedy Festival for the comedy sector as a whole?
4: Um, well, I think it's it's really important because it's giving people a platform to reconnect with audiences. There's certainly a massive appetite out there. P- people want to get out and see stuff. And when you've got a, a festival event that really focuses people's minds, it makes it easy for them to find people to go and, go and see things. Um, a lot of the little venues have been opening, obviously, since before Christmas, but festival time really generates much bigger audiences and gets that sense of we can go out see shows these venues are open it's fine things are happening again I think it really generates that kind of confidence amongst audiences and it's you know all those comedians who haven't had a chance to work all year they they just need stage time they need to be able to get out there and, and and do 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 their work develop their material so that they've got stuff to then work with and earn money from for the rest of the year and you know going going into the future so I think it's. It's important for for everyone, and not not for for getting audiences and performers back back together again. And it takes a while for audiences to feel like they're they're happy about going out, um, to to know that things are open, and also to know that people like us are taking their health and safety seriously. So you know, there's more hand sanitizers than you've ever seen around <laughs> festival planning. But it's not just that; it's also just reducing numbers. Um, in venues, so that venues won't feel as crowded. It will feel. It will probably feel a bit different to a lot of audiences because they'll think, "Oh, this is normally rammed. It's not rammed, and it's not rammed deliberately." <laughs> you know, we don't. There's a huge planning with all venues has gone into making sure that, you know, people waiting to go into shows don't cross over in tight little crowded corridors with the people who are coming out of shows. You know, we've, we've, we've learnt more about how much fresh air goes through different kinds of air conditioners than we ever thought we would need to know in our lives. Um, you know, just all of that, all of that stuff. And it's about, we want audiences to feel confident to know that they can come out, and a lot of thought has gone into making sure it's as safe as it can possibly be for them to sit and watch that show and enjoy themselves. And likewise for the staff, obviously, and and
0: all the performers and producers and one of the things that's intriguing about this year's Melbourne International Comedy Festival program is that audiences don't have to go into the city to see shows, the festival has adapted, the uh, comedy is commuting, going out to comedy. various <laughs> kind of uh, locales <laughs> and neighbourhoods around Melbourne so Howler in Brunswick, Broadmeadows Town oh. Hall, Hawthorne Arts Centre, Footscray Community Arts Centre, uh, Kingston Arts Centre over in Moorabbin, Comedians will be going out to the suburbs to perform rather than people from the suburbs having to necessarily come into the city. So, again, a way to make people feel safer uh, by playing yeah. up that sense of hyper-locality that's been a, a key kind of indicator of the arts over the last six to 12 months.
4: Yeah, well, we thought it was worth doing a bit of that, just pushing, pushing out a bit, and it's, it's being received quite... You know, quite well so far, which is great because we were conscious of it with the lockdown in the last year. A lot of people have become very connected with their neighbourhoods and just really can't be bothered going much further, even, or they don't feel comfortable about going much further. So, yeah, we've got half a dozen, well more than half a dozen shows in different uh, suburban locations just, you know, just outside the CBD so that people who don't want to necessarily go into the CBD can find something handy. It's also an opportunity because we're um, the comedians doing uh, some of those shows are people who haven't got uh, who aren't doing festival seasons. You know, some of them are, are, some of them are not, because not not every comedian who would normally do a festival season um, had the resources to get up a show for this year. They just didn't feel like they'd had enough time or stage time to develop a new show or, you know, they didn't have the money for getting it on and stuff. So, you know, we're trying to support... Those little bits and pieces. So there, so there will be some people doing those suburban shows who you won't necessarily see doing a whole season. So yeah, it's uh, that 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 is something different um, which does address our you know how things are uh, at the moment. And you know we might continue doing that because it is it's seeming to be received quite well.
0: So and the
4: festival. It's good we've also.
0: I was just going to jump in there to say you've also uh, kind of continued uh, the idea of the online experience and online engagement. That's also part of the festival this year. And I'm so delighted to see that arts organisations are maintaining this. Uh, uh, Friends who uh, live with disability... Uh, have commented on the fact that, oh, once the, the broader population suddenly needed broader access to events and because we... Uh, kind of Suddenly it all happened and they were concerned that it would stop happening once venues had reopened. But the idea of uh, streamed shows, online experiences, one of which is... To reference what you were saying earlier about comedians not necessarily having the opportunity to test out material in front of live audiences, the Comedy Rooms of Melbourne uh, event hosted by Dave Thornton, which is looking at the, the venues across Melbourne where comedians do cut their teeth, where they do tighten and hone material... This is just one of many online events and experiences that the festival are offering this year.
4: Yeah, absolutely. Because we were very conscious that there would be people who didn't feel comfortable about coming out and seeing a lot of shows, and so we wanted to make sure that there was that they could still engage with the festival and watch stuff online. And also, to be honest, you know, it's a backup because just in case, who knows <laughs> <laughs> what? you know, touch wood, everything will go smoothly but we wanted to ha- make sure that we had, had a program that no matter what happens we can still we can still deliver and it gave us the opportunity to do some really fun things, you know, like the uh, something that celebrates all those little those little venues that are the are the comedy fabric of Melbourne and have been forever. So it's it's great for people to have a glimpse at those venues and hopefully they'll they'll be introduced you know, they'll there'll be people who watch that little sort of obdoc series and know those venues, but hopefully there will also be people who might not know those venues and they'll think, oh, you know, they'll continue to visit them after the festival. Um, and a few of the other, other um, you know, it was an opportunity to work with some comedians, a series of special guests with their friends. So people such as Geraldine Hickey and Andy Saunders and Randy Feltface and others have done a series of um, showcases with their their mates. So lots of stand-up for those people who want to see that stuff. It's also with the online program an opportunity to work with some of our international friends who just can't obviously get here this year. So we're doing a series of stuff with Mark Watson, which is going to involve a lot of British comedians, Um, most of whom have been here before and some who were going to come last year but couldn't. So that's a great way to keep that kind of international engagement happening. And there's a few other things still on the bubble. You know, at the last, with the rush to the finish line, we're still working on a few things that haven't been announced yet. But we think we are going to come off at the last minute in terms of um, some online shows with overseas other overseas performers as well. So and Watson, one of Mark Watson's big things of course is going to be what he's going to finish his little series with is one of his twenty four hour shows, which is, you know, going around the whole world in twenty four hours and Engaging with people with at showtime wherever they are. So um, he hasn't done one of those in Melbourne for probably about ten years. So I
0: that's was it Must be about a decade. Mm. So yeah, mm. the Melbourne International Comedy Festival is running from the twenty fourth of March until the eighteenth of April. You can find out all the full details at comedyfestival.com.au. com au. Susan, just before I let you go, obviously. Comedians would normally tour regularly. Uh, the festival itself presents the comedy roadshow, and also has, uh, in recent years, has been uh, bringing in comedians and developing relationships with comedians in India, in uh, our uh, neighbouring countries in the Asia Pacific and Southeast Asia. International travel is hard at the moment. Even travelling in Australia is hard at the moment because of border closures and snap lockdowns, et cetera. Just briefly to end on, what are you doing this year in terms of the roadshow and, and supporting comedians to put on shows and, and build their audiences? Mm.
4: Well, the roadshow is happening. You just mentioned India. That's going to be one of our... Uh, doing something with our pals from India is going to be one of our online shows as well, I should plug that. But... um, uh, the roadshow is rolling out. It's just being announced gradually, just when we become totally confident that we can, or feeling confident about getting over borders. So the big comedy festival roadshow is is going to be happening, starting with some regional Victorian stuff straight after the comedy festival, but then rolling out Queensland, New South Wales, um, South Australia, Northern Territory, you know, every- everywhere that we normally do, unless borders close. Um, so we are absolutely aiming to do all of that, and all of our regional, all of the producers that we work with, all those um, art centres all over Australia, are dead keen to get the roadshow back out
0: there. I'm not surprised, and I'm dead keen mm. to dive back into the festival and laugh myself silly, because God knows I missed some good comedy last year, and oh, uh, laughter is medicine, <laughs> it really is. Yeah. So, uh the Melbourne International Comedy Festival from the twenty fourth of March to the eighteenth of April. Jump online, book tickets, see shows, support comedians, help them pay their rent. www.comedyfestival.com.au. Susan Proven, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Triple R on FM, digital, online, and via the app.
0: Now, one of the things that fascinates me about Irish history is the Easter Rising of 1916, which was, on paper, an unsuccessful rebellion, but the backlash against it is then what helped drive the Irish public at large to embrace the idea of an independent island, uh, which eventually became the Irish Free State after uh, a guerrilla war against the British Empire, a civil war within Ireland itself and more. But one of the most significant and fascinating women of the Easter Rising, was Constance Countess Markowitz, a remarkable woman who was born into wealth and privilege and who dedicated her life to freedom and equality for the Irish people. With International Women's Day just gone and Easter looming, it's the perfect time to consider her life and the contribution that she and other women made to Irish independence. A name for herself is a new play about the women of the Irish independence movement written by Meg McNeena, who joins me on the line. Meg, good morning.
5: Good morning, Richard. Thanks very much for talking with me this morning.
0: So you've written this play, uh, which is focused on uh, Constance Markowitz and other women of the Irish independence movement. It's uh, being performed this Saturday uh, at 1.30pm and 6.30pm at the Resistance Theatre in High Street, East Q. What was it about Constance Markowitz's story that made you think there's a play in this?
5: Well, as you say, um, Constance Markowitz is a fascinating woman. Uh, she is... Contradictory in many ways. She's a woman who was born into Anglo Irish privilege. Uh, She had, you know, a nanny growing up and learnt many, many languages and um, was a crack uh, marksman and a uh, champion horse rider. So uh, she comes from that background and transforms into a woman who sells her jewels to fund a soup kitchen in the Dublin lockout in 1913. She helps to found several organisations which are interested in Irish freedom. She is a suffragist. Um, and so she, she has come from all of this privilege and yet uh, she ends up being... A revolutionary woman who makes such a difference um, to the to the cause of women, but also to the cause of um, Irish freedom. So, she also, though, um, is very witty in the things that she says. And so, yes, I was drawn to a character who had paid such a personal cost for the better good. Um, so, yeah, she, she's she's a really fascinating. Um, character for me to have written about and the other aspect of that she so Constance is a militant um revolutionary and her sister Eva Gorbuth is a pacifist poet who also cares very much about social justice and becomes very involved uh, in the in women's rights and in the labour movement in England. Um, but the idea of this militant rebel and her pacifist sister and how those women reconcile uh, the difference, you know, the, their different journeys uh, in trying to support women and uh, people who
0: have less voice than them. It's that, that notion of women from the same family, the same social class and background going on such different routes is clearly a fascinating one and, uh, uh, as you've encapsulated, it provides plenty of, uh, of drama, uh, the essence of drama being conflict. So... Uh, the idea of exploring the conflict between their different ideologies and political approaches is fascinating. How do you make a play like this come to life without being didactic in its messaging around uh, politics and independence and without, I guess, bogging down or boring the general public who might be interested in these women's stories but quite unfamiliar perhaps with the history of the uh, the Irish liberation and Irish uh, resistance? I
5: think that's a really good question because I think while I can be inspired by these women I think it's important um, people come as an audience to actually be entertained to to see the drama and I think uh, we have an, a a fantastic team, um, a wonderful uh, director, Linda Fleming, who's from uh, Dublin. She grew up there and understands the history very well. And then we have a great team of actors. So in theatre, I very much trust the power of that relationship between the actors and the world that they invite the audience into. So um, when I write, I usually write very minimally set uh, pieces so that the power of creating the world is very much between the actors and the audience. There's quite a lot of humour in the play as well, and I think that's also engaging. There's quite funny bits between. Um, Uh, Constance and her sister, they have an ongoing um, sibling rivalry over all sorts of things. Um, Eva herself was a poet and um, a playwright. And so there's this... um, And, sorry, Constance uh, was an actress as well. Uh, She uh, acted in plays and helped produce them at the Abbey Theatre. And so there's an ongoing rivalry between them. Uh, There's... um, a priest uh, who uh happens to visit her and uh part of uh, his journey is to actually have the patience to have to deal with her because she can be quite a demanding and impatient woman as well so I think an engaging drama not only puts forward this person whom I admire but it also looks at her vulnerabilities and the ways in which she can be annoying (laughs) she can be annoying to her sister and the people around her and I think that that's the difference between uh, doing something that's didactic and creating a human drama.
0: Now uh, Lady Gregory, one of the founders of the Abbey Theatre and uh, a significant figure in Irish literature. After uh, Constance died, uh, she described her as a jealous meddler in the Abbey and also in Hugh Lane's gallery. Uh, But uh, her energy found a better scope when she took up the labour movement Uh, and then obviously that uh, involvement with the the labour movement then led to uh, her involvement in the Easter Rising and the, the cause of Irish independence. From Britain, one of the things which fascinates me about that period, of course, is that uh, women were considered equal partners in the rebellion. The, uh, the the proclamation of independence read on the steps of the uh, the GPO in the heart of Dublin talked about equality for all in Ireland, a radical statement at the time after the rebellion it seems like some of those socialist goals the the aspects around equality for all were kind of were pushed off to the side and uh, and overlooked and as we saw, the, uh, the the rise of the power of the church played a key role in that. Uh, does your play explore the, the, the aftermath of the rebellion and how Constance was, was jailed, uh, elected to the British Parliament but refused to take her seat and that kind of chafing between her socialist and feminist ideals and the reality of what Ireland became?
5: Yes, the play is very... Uh, concerned about uh, Constance's journey uh, from a young woman um, being taught to shoot and hunt uh, with her father right through uh, to her election to Westminster. But uh, it sows the seeds uh, for the unrest. I think it's interesting when you look at what happened, um, if you think about Constance, one of her um, very close mentors was James Connolly, um, a very renowned uh, socialist. And when you think about the leaders of the rising, the, the poets and the social changes and them having been wiped out. So that voice, I think, for those socialist ideals um, was snuffed a bit with their passing um, and I think that uh, the play does, uh, James Connolly is uh, one of the characters in the play, and so that relationship between um, what his ideals are about sort of workers and that a revolution starts with the hands, not the minds, and that you actually have to, that you can't teach a starving man anything. So that sort of uh, pragmatic uh, socialism that tries to create an even um, playing field. And that's certainly a big change uh, for Constance from where she's come from. And certainly, if you can imagine, she was treated at first as a person of great suspicion because uh, she arrived to some of her first uh, meetings with the women, um, you know, coming from a soiree with, you know, sort of jewels in her hair and sort of flouncing about. Um, so she had to earn her way into all of that. And that is one of the themes, is that she remains an outsider. So it's that struggle of earning your way, having and being sort of branded from um, your your upbringing and, and your beliefs. Uh, so, yes, um, the play does... Uh, look at that as well. It looks at the inconsistencies. It certainly uh, looks at the the changing position of the church in amongst all of that history as well and uh, the Priest is a great uh, foil uh, for that because uh, certainly they have some challenging conversations.
0: The play is called A Name for Herself, written by Meg Mcnina, and who is also producing the work, and it's on for two performances only this Saturday, the 13th of March, 1.30pm and 6.30pm at the aptly named Resistance Theatre. Eight hundred and twenty-six High Street in Q East. You can book by jumping online. trybooking.com dot com forward slash b n w e e. That's trybooking.com dot com forward slash b n w e e. Or you can pick up the phone and call zero one four two. 320480 that's 0142 320480 to book to see a name for herself on this saturday at 1:30 and 6:30 p.m. at the resistance theatre in high street q east meg mcneena thank you so much for joining us here on triple r and chuckers for the uh, for the two performances this weekend this is a podcast from triple r an independent media organisation in melbourne australia Triple R is listener supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. All the way back in May 2013, I wrote about a new arts precinct that was being developed uh, under plans by Arts Victoria and then Minister for the Arts, Heidi Victoria. And it's taken a while, but Collingwood Yards is opening to the public, uh, having its launch and uh, open day this Saturday, the 13th of March. One of the directors of Collingwood Yards, Eugenia Flynn, joins us on the line to tell us more. Eugenia, it's been a bit of a long journey for the site, the space and everyone involved.
6: Yes, hi, good morning. Um, Yeah, it has. We've had a a physical transformation of the site, we had a bit of a hiatus with COVID, but... We're now officially opening to the public, you say, on, on Saturday. and Really, really excited to show the public um, what we've been able to achieve with the site and really the vibrancy that we have created there and show off our tenant community.
0: Now, that tenant community is a key part of the future of the space itself because you can build something, you can renovate something, in this case uh, the old Collingwood uh tech, which then became a a Collingwood TAFE, Uh, but until you add artists to the mix to create that fine grain and uh, that, that variety of, uh, of institutions, of galleries, of cafes, of, of shops, of music studios and more, That talk to us about that mix of artists and artisans and businesses that will be kind of activating, in inverted commas, to use an over, overused arts industry phrase, that will be activating Collingwood Yard's.
6: Yeah, you know, it's one of those things that for me, watching that process of organisations, artists move into the site and take it over, make it their own and already begin doing things like collaborating together, you know, there's already been events of that have slowly started happening. And to see that excitement, that level of creativity, has been a privilege to, to watch. And, you know, I think that it is a really exciting mix of uh, you know, quite diverse art forms, you know, diverse um, organisations. You know, there's individual artists that are in the studio spaces, Um, you know and then uh, you know as you say there's um, hospitality offerings as well and you know I think that sort of mix is one of the real assets that I think we have um, at Collingwood Yards and is really going to attract people in I think to see what is happening there on a daily basis you know what can I see what can I visit Um, I think that's going to really exciting for hopefully for Collingwood Yards and also uh, the neighbourhood that we find ourselves
0: in. Now the idea of bringing that uh, I guess the, that variety of artists and organisations and businesses together, that's uh Obviously, the board of directors of whom you're one has been helping push that. Also, Marcus Westbury, the uh, CEO, who I believe just finished up last week. Is that correct?
6: Yeah, yeah. Um, he's moving on and we're in the process of, um, you know, uh, appointing a new director of Collingwood Yard. And, you know, I think that what Marcus and the team at Collingwood Yard and the board um, actually joined the board. I think it must be only two years ago now. And you know, joining this extremely committed team to have a huge, huge vision has been incredible. It's been really wonderful, I think, to to be able to um, to join that group and to see that huge vision take shape. It's a real testament I think to to Marcus's work and to everybody involved. Collingwood
0: Yard. This Saturday, the 13th of March, is the Collingwood Yards launch, open day, and public celebration, featuring, uh, a, I guess, a, a sample of just some of the activities that will be happening uh, in the space all year round uh, in the future. And so that includes our sister station uh, PBS presenting uh, some uh, some work. There's uh, Bad Apples music led by Briggs, yeah. kind of perform- uh, doing some live performance. The Push. The Youth Music Organisation and Record Label will be showcasing some talents, I believe, out the front of the uh, the famous Keith, Herring, uh, Keith Haring uh, mural on Johnson Street.
6: Yeah, that's right. You know, it's going to be a wonderful day where, you know, as you said, there's a lot of music offering because we do have um, a lot of different music organisations that are in that space. We also have, like, a range of different artist organisations that are inviting people into their studios and and really, you know, um, engaging with the community. And so, you know, that includes things like the social studio will be doing, I think it's some kind of workshop. You know, obviously a a lot of the different um, arts organisations will be uh, having people come in. There'll be projections, a whole range of different
0: things. Let's talk for a moment about those studios because, for me, that's one of the key aspects of Collingwood Yards. Throughout uh, the inner city, and particularly in the city of Yarra, which used to be such a, a hub of artistic activity, rising rental prices, uh, rising house prices have driven artists and their community and their studios out of mm. the area. So, Collingwood Yards, it, part of what the organisation, the space will be doing is I guess drawing a line in the sand and saying, no, there will be spaces for artists to create ongoing in the future in Collingwood to kind of not just maintain that history but create that history afresh and anew and the idea of collaboration springing up over because artists have popped into one another's studio for a coffee or to discuss Mm -hmm. ideas is is wonderful but who are some of the artists and the organisations kind of particularly on the visual arts front for example who will be setting up shop at Collingwood Yards?
6: Yeah, I must I say that, that's exactly right. what you're saying there about, you know, the the real need that we are fulfilling there is that ability to be able to have artists in Collingwood in a way that is financially sustainable for them. And, you know, that's... So important, I think, for Collingwood, for the arts ecology in Melbourne and the state. So that's something that I I think, you know, I feel particularly proud of. You know, in terms of the artists that are um, in in the space, you know, we have um, uh, bus projects, Um, and that kind of, you know, bigger arts organisations and the the visual arts side. But, you know, the studio spaces I've been a little bit more involved in. Um, We have a range of different people. We have the Us Mob Collective. We have um, the the filmmaking um, collective that's run by um, Tony Briggs. You know, we have um, the... Um, uh, back of Melbourne, um, uh, Artist in Residence, um, Danielle Brissman. So, you know, we have a, a range of different people in that space. We have Uncle Jack Charles in that space as well. So it is great. You know, I think one of the really lovely things about that studio space, um, because they have been sort of a bit more closely is to see how eager people are to go, you know, even during that COVID Period where we couldn't officially open, and you know, before lockdowns, p- people were in those spaces, and so so desperately wanted to go back to them after the lockdowns lifted, and just to be able to be in that studio space, making and meeting other other people who are there um, in residence with them, and to be able to talk and collaborate and create, I think you know, has been really beautiful.
0: I can't wait to see it all in action as a as kind of buzzing hive of creative energy in the heart of Collingwood. If people haven't uh, kind of checked out the site yet by, I don't know, peering around as it's been developing or sticking their head round a corner, etc. The open day and public celebration of Collingwood Yards is happening this Saturday, the 13th of March. Uh, Entry via 35A Johnson Street, Collingwood. You can step through a space that's been punched through an old building and opened up the site to allow easy kind of entrance and egress. Uh, Check out more info at collingwoodyards.org. I've been chatting with Eugenia Flynn, who's one of the directors of Collingwood Yards. Eugenia, uh, congratulations to you and the whole team. And as I said, I'm very much looking forward to checking out the space. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews, and interviews about the arts, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website.